we're now rolling out proper territories, which we really haven't had loosely up to now, but now we properly have that for our team. It's obviously a much bigger sales team. Um, just the importance of like functions like RevOps um, starting to get into just that level of data and um, how you scale, scale your go-to-market becomes much more important. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth, and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today, and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. All right, welcome to the SaaS Revolution show. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, CEO, founder of SaaStock. Uh, today, I'm delighted to be joined by Brendan Nude, who is the uh, co-founder and CEO of LearnUpon. Uh, welcome, Brendan. Hi, Alex. Uh, good to talk to you. Nice to be on the show. Yeah, great to have you on the podcast. Uh, uh, on the podcast for the first time, uh, I think you've been a long-time uh, uh, attendee or you know community member of, of SaaStock. So I think you've been, I don't know if you've been to all the SaaStocks, or you, you probably know uh, better than me, but uh, you've, been, you've been to quite a lot, right? Yeah, I think I was at the first one and we've been at them all since. Um, so yeah, look forward to it every year. It's a great networking opportunity um, and uh, always a fun couple of days. Awesome. Awesome. Well, well, well great, uh, great that you've been to uh, uh, them all. And, um, and and from that, obviously, you, you know, I've met you a few times, but uh, uh, as we said on the podcast for the first time, so if you tell the audience a little bit uh, about yourself, who is, uh, who is Brendan Nude? Um, so, um, yeah, my name's Brendan Oud, so it's a difficult surname to pronounce, but uh, yeah, uh, and you, you, you've, you've, you're close enough. Um, I'm I'm from uh, Kildare, which is about an hour south of Dublin in Ireland. So, um, yeah, grew up in uh, a family, I guess, that had a family business. Um, and so I suppose my entrepreneurial um interest was probably peaked at an early age. Um, uh, my mom had a restaurant uh, that she ran in uh, for 35 years. And so myself and my siblings, we were uh, inducted into that early days um, to help out. And uh, yeah, probably by the time I was uh, 10 or 12, I was I was doing payroll and um, tax returns and different things like that. So I've, uh, I've always been really interested in business and uh, I did um, did business in college um, in UCD and ended up, um, my first job as a graduate was at KPMG Consulting, um, which, where I was and really enjoyed that. Um, I kind of was there for five years, got involved in a lot of IT strategy and business consulting type of projects. And uh, after my time there, I joined WBT Systems, um, which was an Irish ed tech company um, around since the mid 90s. And that was my first, I guess, entry into e-learning and uh, learning management systems. Um, so that was in 2004. Um, I met my co-founder, Des, um, learn upon CTO there as well. He was there a few years before me. So um, I'm now coming up on 20 years in the in the e-learning space. Um, love it, really excited about it. Um, and and outside of the, we can talk a little bit more about the learn upon journey. But uh, but outside of that, I'm uh, uh, married and two small kids to keep me busy outside of work. And uh, when I have spare time, love love sports mainly, and and to do with, with kind of business and startups and things like that. Very cool, very cool. Thank uh, thanks for sharing that. And uh, I, I was just like uh, a, a little bit uh, more for microsecond daydreaming there when you were talking about when you were eleven, twelve. 
um, you know, doing the tax returns and getting involved in the in the family business. And I was just thinking about my own kids, and I was just thinking, like, when can I get them involved in the uh, the tax returns? But I, I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's something I could force them into. You've got to want to uh, uh, do that, and not not even I want to do that. But uh, um, so um, we'll see. But uh, great uh, great background there, and seeing you coming from that entrepreneurial. Uh, uh, sort of family and and you mentioned that love for e-learning and to learn upon us you know in the e-learning space what's the founding story there you obviously met your your co-founder des um you know um uh, at the previous company but like why did you decide to build learn upon and uh, and, and what is it yeah um so learn upon's a, a learning management system so basically a platform that helps companies deliver learning uh, online learning for their employees um for training customers partners or um, we work with a lot of organizations that are training external um, audiences as well, as well, like sporting organizations who use LearnUpon to train coaches and volunteers, for example. Um, in terms of the space, the previous company myself and Des worked with, um, I was kind of on the project manager business analyst side for a few years and then moved into sales. Des was on the techie side, so a solution architect and kind of developer. Um, they were a behind the firewall platform um, and highly customizable, so very powerful. Worked with some amazing uh, organizations, large global organizations with a platform that helped deliver their their online and face-to-face training. Um, I guess uh, after eight years there, and particularly on the sales side um, and talking to Des constantly and probably driving them mad a bit, uh, we felt there was an opportunity for a different kind of type of solution focused on um, initially SMBs and small training companies um, to, that was a cloud SaaS solution. So, Cloud and SaaS was still relatively early, I would say, when we started in 2012. And um, I suppose rather than a platform that took, you know, six, nine or 12 months to implement, we wanted to, to build something that uh, our customers could get using um, straight away that day within within an hour. Um, and um, so we, we set about that journey um, in 2012 to, to go build a platform. A lot of the solutions at the time were difficult to use, poor learner experience, um, the difficult administrator experience. Um, you needed lots of training to learn how to use the platforms and they were poorly supported. So they were key drivers for us. And uh, we, we talked about building a platform that was quick to set up, easy to use with great customer support. So it was it was those three pillars initially um, that, that got us off the ground. And, and so you started in 2012. Uh, we're speaking just before Christmas in, in 2023. Can you paint a little bit of picture? What sort of data can you share uh, uh, on the business? You know, how many people, perhaps sort of, you know, revenue, um, venture back, bootstrapped, uh, this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, today, like we've over 1,500 customers on the platform. Um, we're primarily focused on North America. Um, that's about 70% of our business. Um, uh, but we are looking to, we're kind of currently focused on expanding in EMEA. Um, that's part of our growth strategy. Um, we, we have about 270 people globally, um, headquartered in Dublin in Ireland. So we've about 100 
30 people there. We've a, a team of mainly product and engineering um, in Serbia and Belgrade, where Des is based. Um, and then we've offices in Philadelphia, Salt Lake City. Uh, we opened up a sales office early last year there. Um, a, small, a team in Phoenix and a small team in Sydney. Um, and then some, obviously some remote workers. Uh, and today there's uh, over 19 million uh, learners on the platform. Um, I think we've delivered over 150 million courses um, to date. Um, so it's pretty high scale. Um, in terms of revenues, we're north of 30 million ARR. And uh, I guess we're focused on the next leg of our journey over the next three years to get to 100 million. Awesome. Awesome. Well, well, congrats. And and, and that's, um, you know, a, a great phase of the journey to uh, uh, to be on. And uh, obviously, that, that that's what, what we kind of want to jump into, right? So uh, talking about, I guess, uh, initially the journey to 30 million and kind of breaking that down in uh, you, you know, a few stages, and then how are you thinking about getting to 100 million uh, now as well? I think would be uh, would be super interesting. So, so let let's start. I guess 2012 zero zero revenue, just you and Des. Uh, I would imagine um, you know from zero to one million. Um, you know, how long did that take? You know, what were your key learnings for for this stage? Yeah, um, so we were largely bootstrapped um, throughout, um, probably up until three years ago, which I, I hadn't mentioned. But um, we'd done a couple of small seed rounds. Um, we we got some support from Enterprise Ireland here, um, which which was certainly a big help for us. But we raised our first seed round in 2013. Um, it was 550k, um, so not not huge. Um, prior to that, we had uh, we were on the NDRC accelerator program, the Launchpad program, um, along with some really other great companies like Soundwave and Bizimply. So an interesting cohort of companies, which was great to work with. Um, I would say getting off the ground, our initial focus was on uh, training companies. And it's a very crowded space. There's over a thousand LMSs. Um, I remember trying to Probably one of the reasons we were largely bootstrapped was it was hard to get VCs um, interested in the business, given like, you know, there's over a thousand LMSs. Why would you want to create another one? Um, but we felt there was an opportunity to create a, a really great one with a, with a particular focus. Um, we, we started initially, we branded and marketed ourselves as the LMS for training companies. And that really stood out in a crowded space. Most LMSs were focused on employee training at the time. And we could see a lot of businesses out there that were selling content. Um, and if their customers or prospects didn't have an LMS, that was a barrier to sale. So we wanted to give them a platform where they could create a branded portal and license their content down in about 60 seconds. So that was a big driver for us. And we went to conferences. Like I remember being at Learning Technologies in London, one of the first conferences we went to in 2012 after we launched with a small two by three meter boot. Um, there was about 40 other LMSs, much larger than us there. Um, but we were the only one that was the LMS for training companies. So on our 100 euro pop-up banner, that's what we said. And people would walk by and stop and go, I'm a training company, show me what you've got. And uh, we came away with that conference, I think with seven or eight paying customers. Um, and uh, we sort of, we knew we had something there that was resonating. Uh, and so we focused on that for the first couple of years. I think it took us about three years to get to a million in, in annual recurring revenue. Um, but I think the things that worked well, it was that focus. Um, we actually got, we had some really good mentors and advisors through the NDRC. I remember one of the mentors, we we wanted to, at the time maybe think feel we could be all things for all people 
Um, and he was quick to really challenge us, like a two-person company. How are you going to do that? Um, where what where can you solve the biggest problem and why? And he pushed us on that, and that's where we zoned in on training companies. Um, uh, so that worked out really well for us. And I think those the other thing that was we did well, I think, was those early hires. Our first five, ten employees, many of them are still with the company today, ten years later. Um, I think really helped with setting the culture and, you know, the ambition and drive of where we wanted to take the business. They really bought into that. Amazing, amazing. Um, out of curiosity, are, are any of those five or ten, are they on the, the leadership teams or are they uh, are they still doing the same roles or different roles within the business? Uh, yeah, some are, some are doing different roles. So like Susan is our uh, COO. Um, so she would have joined, uh, I think, employee number seven or eight as um, operations manager. A few years later, she became head of operations. And a few years after that, she became our COO. Um, others have gone in different directions. Our, our first two hires, um, Shane was our first hire in customer support. Um, and um, he helped build out our support team over the first three or four years. And then wanted a change, so ended up moving into a, an SRE role with the company. And today he's one of our senior SREs with the business. Um, he hit his 10-year anniversary with us in August. Um, and uh, so, and Stevo, our second hire, hit his 10-year anniversary in September. Um, he was our first engineering hire. And today he's one of our senior architects. So um, we've always tried to create, um, we're a learning company. We believe in um, investing in our people and creating opportunities for growth. And that's something I think we've done quite well, where people have moved into different areas and new opportunities when you're growing um, pretty fast year on year, that the, the business evolves and new opportunities um, spring up all the time. And uh, while we're always hiring in really good external talent where where it makes sense, we love to kind of obviously promote, promote in and move people into new opportunities so that they can continue to develop themselves, challenge themselves. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think we've over 50 people today that are five plus years with the business, which in a competitive um, tech space um, is something we're, we're proud of. What, what was it? Um, so it sounds like a great place to work, um, but like getting those first five to 10 hires uh, right, uh, no easy feat, right? And and often a lot of uh, mishires, you know, can happen, at, you know, at, at this stage. Um, what do you think, reflecting on it, that it, it was that you did right to ensure that actually, you, you know, you have uh, you made those first kind of 10 hires uh, really well and many of them still with the business. So what, what do you think you, you did back then? Um, I'd say like uh, we didn't get all the hires right in the early days, um, but I think we moved reasonably quickly where for one reason or another, if someone wasn't the right fit, um, uh, uh, we were, we would have, you know, exited them, I guess, from the business. And I think that helps reinforce with the people who are in there of what, what the standard and expectation is to work for the company. I think our hiring process evolved as well, where, where someone didn't work out, we kind of did retros and asked ourselves what, how could we have changed the hiring interview process? to maybe find find out things that, you know, why that person wasn't successful in the role. Um, and so we evolved that quite a bit in the first couple of years, um, bringing in task rounds, you know, just bringing in um, uh, in person, go for a coffee, go for a lunch. We kind of each time kind of kept reflecting on that. And we got very good at hiring, I would think, quite early. And I think that's that's 
uh, a key thing for any high growth company when when you're hiring people you want to try and get those hires right as much as possible um i think the other thing was um i suppose the autonomy we we gave people like we we talk about hire great people and let them do great work and that's something from myself and Des's perspective. We've no interest in micromanaging people. In the early days, we were there to support people, share our experience. But at the end of the day, we kind of want the people to go get their hands dirty. Sometimes we make mistakes and we learn from them. Um, but I think you're better off doing that than maybe not letting people try things, um, even if they're, you know, if some if it's not always going to go right. Um, and we it evolved over time. I think we kind of knew we had a strong culture at about 20 or 30 people. But at that point, we decided to document it, um, put what we called at the time our learning path in place and brought everyone across the business to get involved in that. And it's something they're not just words on a wall. I think um, it's evolved. Um, I think your culture is constantly evolving as you move, as, as you kind of grow through the various stages. Today, we have our culture code, which is it's certainly somewhat inspired by HubSpot, who we're big fans of. Um, it's publicly available on our website, um, but we um, we embed it right across the business every day. Um, and I think all of those factors, um, when people join, we're very upfront about what the culture is in the business and we're not for everybody. Um, but when people kind of are excited by the opportunity and the challenge that they'll get with Learn Upon, um, then I think they, they have the opportunity to drive in the business. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's something we keep working on. We have a really good in-house talent team. I think that's the other thing, which we took, we didn't do initially. It was a few years um, in before we did that. But I think in-house recruiters really understand the culture. They're part of the culture of the business. Um, and uh, they can help identify people who will be successful um, and I think the last thing I'd add is we, from pretty early 2016, uh, when we did um, a kind of our follow on seed round, we put an ESOP in place um, for all employees. And, and it's not just exec leadership, it's everyone who joins the company um, gets ESOP in the business once they're through their probationary period. So one of our values is to act like an owner. And we say like, it's not acting, you are an owner, a part owner of the business. And I think that helps with people making good decisions and, and being really bought into the to their journey with the company. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let, let's jump into the one to 10 million um, uh, stage. So again, uh, just from a, a time frame sort of indication, how long did that take? And, and what were the key things that you did uh, that worked, you know, as, as, as you, uh, you know, went forward to, to 10 million? Yeah, so I think it took us about three and a half to get to one and it took us about another three years to get to 10 million. Um, so I would say it was like steady growth, like year on year. Um, we kind of worked our way up from, I think it was like one, um, three, seven, eleven, something like that. Um, I think the things we learned as, as we were scaling we were quite good at our pricing strategy. And again, some of that was external great advice from people like Fergus Gloucester, um, um, ex Marketo, where just having an hour of his time and he tore our pricing page and pricing strategy apart um, and really helped, you know, um, kind of focus it a bit better. But it was one of the things I think in terms of as we were growing, we, we moved our pricing up. We added extra levers in there as to how we could extract value from the platform. Um, and so obviously we wanted to add more customers, you know, create more leads and more pipeline. But probably one of the biggest accelerators that you can control is 
is is your price points. Um, so we did that quite well. Um, I think the other learnings during that phase is you start to segment more. Um, when you're a small team in that early stage, up to a million, everybody, their remit's quite wide and everybody does a little bit of everything in some ways. Um, what we realized on the next phase is like we used to have account execs that did everything from qualifying leads that came in, effectively doing the, the SDR, BDR role, being the account executive right the way through to doing the demo um, what today be a sales engineering role um, right through to closing. Um, we split um, a few years in and we had a, we split our sales team to have um, BDRs and account execs. And that had a big impact because the reality is our A's were too stretched trying to do everything and we weren't as responsive as we, we could have been. And within six months of that change, we could see the impact, the positive impact. And I think that's something that's continued um, as we've gone on the journey whether it's your go-to-market motion or your um, customer experience motion, I think you keep specialising and putting, um, yeah, um, uh, segmenting different aspects of the business, um, keeping everyone working closely together. Um, yeah, so they they're probably the the biggest things that like were a factor in that phase of the journey. I would say. Yeah, and I, I think I mean, you, you covered it well enough, but just I guess to repeat, like pricing is such a great lever for growth, and I think. Uh, too often, you know, people are really afraid to, I don't know, pull that lever and you hear and like, you know, SaaS companies are coming to SaaS stock that they haven't changed their pricing in years, right? But uh, then, of, of course, then you, you, you hear like people like Patrick Campbell who, when, you know, he was speaking at SaaS stock in terms of, uh, you, you know, how uh, impactful it is and how frequently that you should be, you, you know, uh, changing your pricing. And it's always, the answer is always more often than you uh, than you think uh, you should, right? So, uh, and when I look at, you know, we're not a SaaS company, but uh, SaaS stock for the first three years, and, you, you know, that is the, the caveat or, you, you know, uh, the, 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 or the context, you know, for the first three years, we had 100% growth year over year. And largely because, you, you know, I was just increasing the pricing, you know, or like doubling the pricing, right? And, uh, and, and that was really kind of impactful for us, but you, but we we could only get to a certain point where we, we you know we can't keep doubling the pricing, right? Um, but uh, um, it's interesting, perhaps as, as you scale, then perhaps looking at other ways of uh, using pricing to 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 keep helping you scale uh, because of the certain things that you did in the early days you can't uh, perhaps do now. So I don't know if, if that's the same within SaaS. Yeah, I think it's into like one of the things we learned as well, like when we started, we had like a monthly pricing option and then an annual one where you got a 10% discount if you prepaid for the year. And I was a couple of years in, um, again, conversations with, with Ferguson were saying like we had a few hundred customers at the time, so we had validation. He was like, why don't you just have everyone annual only? Like, why are you doing like particularly we started moving from training companies into corporate space um, kind of companies with a couple of hundred employees up to companies with a couple of thousand employees. And today, some of the largest companies in the world use uh, use Learn Upon as their LMS. But w what we learned was, yeah, we, we did that switch to annual only and we didn't miss a beat, but it has a massive impact on your cash flow, um, particularly if you're a bootstrap startup. And I know at the time, some of our AEs were nervous because the monthly option was a great, like if you're not to get those sales, if you're not happy, you can cancel with 30 days notice. It was a nice kind of crutch to have. And so they were concerned about the annual only commitment. But again, we, we, we didn't miss a beat on that. And um, it, yeah, it had a big impact on the business. And likewise, we increased our pricing every year. 
platform was obviously being built out. At the start, there was probably some pushback. You know, cause I think we started, we had a, an entry plan for $99 a month that you could pay on your credit card. And we started to obviously move that up over time. And it was funny how after a couple of years, the AEs were coming to me and going, when are we increasing our pricing again? <laughs> you know, cause they started to see the impact and it obviously positive for their commissions and hidden quota and all of those kind of things. Roughly six years, just a little over six years to get to the 10 million. Uh, and then I guess probably another sort of six years to get to 30 million um, there or thereabouts. Yeah, yeah, a bit less. Uh, I think actually we, yeah, we hit 10 around uh, 20, 2019, um, the end of 2019. Um, so we were, um, we actually, that was something we had about 100 people, 106 at the time. We decided to bring everyone away to celebrate that milestone. So we had a weekend away in Berlin and I think at that point we've been running hard for six, seven years and it was important. We've been kind of had that milestone in our heads. I think um, one of the things like, you know, 10 million, I think for any SaaS company is an important milestone. That's that point where I think you've, you know, a business of some scale and you really start to think about the next stage from then. So, we, yeah, we brought the whole company, people from Australia, the States, um, Serbia, Ireland, all to Berlin for a weekend. We looked back at the journey up to that point and uh, we outlined our plans to go from 10 to 100 million um, over the next uh, kind of seven years. Um, we're, we're well on that journey now. Um, we're, I guess, four years later, um, uh, well on that journey and it probably won't be too far off. Um, yeah, kind of seven years to go from 10 to 100. So it's interesting, like it takes you yeah, so long to get to a million and almost as long again. But uh, the beauty of SaaS, it really starts to accelerate. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, I think at that point, when we hit that 10 million, it was really trying to like look at how we could put the groundwork in place to go in the next phase of the journey. Obviously, the numbers get bigger. Um, you're trying to close more each year. You're building out your your teams. Um, something I think we've done well the last couple of years is really building out um, our backend infrastructure to be able to scale and, you know, putting in new finance systems, data, um, a BI team, you know, data infrastructure. Um, and I think we've done a good job there that we know we have um, the systems and processes now in place to, to scale to, to 100 million and well beyond it. Um, and so we've tried to do that reasonably early um, because I think it, it has a big impact on how efficiently the business can scale and uh, as the numbers start to get bigger across the board. Just a question actually on, um, maybe I should have asked this earlier, but uh, I think you mentioned in um, uh, in, in the beginning when you were talking about uh, uh, what Lodapon is and about 70% of your customers are coming from the US, um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a global business, right? When did you decide to, uh, to go international? Was it, you know, was it from the get-go? And like, because of, often you hear that, you know, the scaling into the US journey kind of happens maybe like after a million in, uh, in ARR. Um, so yeah, just, just curious to know. Yeah, we, we did it right from day one. Um, so our first 15 customers, I think, were all international, mainly the US, a couple in Canada, a few in the UK, um, before we got a customer in Ireland. Um, so we, and that's continued um, today, like 97 or 8% of our customers are international. But myself and Des, our previous experience with WBT was selling in and working with US companies. So we really like that space. They're passionate about e-learning, they see the value. So 
yeah, I didn't even think twice about it. I went straight for that market. Um, it brought its challenges. Um, we were at that point an Irish, we'd no US offices, so we were an Irish company, but we wanted to support our US customers as if we were on their doorstep. So uh, we did 24-7 support right from day one when it was just myself and Des, and we built built from that. In Dublin, the support team used to do a day shift from like nine to six or a night shift from five to midnight. Um, and we had that for several years before we eventually were in a position to open up a, a support, um, uh, an office in Philadelphia. And that was mainly support and success. So it allowed us to get rid of that graveyard shift. We also had a small team in Sydney. So again, that was mainly focused on that round the clock support. So we've been doing that from day one. Um, so it's hard, like even doing sales from Dublin to the West Coast. Again, if someone wanted a demo at 4 or 5 p.m. PST, our our team were on doing that at like 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, 1 o'clock in the morning. We didn't think twice about it. Um, and so I think we competed from that perspective. It was never like with our U.S. customers, oh, you guys are in Ireland, you won't be able to support us. We were we were quicker than any of the local vendors um, and when it came to any any stage in the process, um, support, sales, whatever it was. So, um, so we've continued and we're now probably reversed to a lot of companies. We're kind of like a U.S. SaaS company. We're now at that stage where we have our EMEA headquarters, but we're really looking at expanding into the Nordics, Benelux, building our presence in UK, Ireland. Um, um, that's a key focus for us now for the next couple of years while continuing to build in the in North America. We're only scratching the surface in terms of the opportunity that's there for us as well. But um, we've uh, we've built out strong teams in Philadelphia and Salt Lakes as well for that, which makes it a bit easier. Has there, has there ever been much sort of discussion between you and Des about one of you moving to the US as you know, sometimes is the case in the early days or, or did you already do that and come back? Yeah, no, we never did it. Um, obviously, we, we were over and back a good bit, um, but we, yeah, it was, I guess, being bootstrapped. I think it was probably one of the luxuries in some ways that we might have had. Um, I think from a personal perspective, um, it made we kind of it made sense for I'm here in Ireland and Des was in Serbia um, and Des had young kids at that stage as well um, so it kind of worked. The downside is we had to work effectively US hours and, and more. Um, I think that's the trade off, you know, um, of, of not making that move. Um, we we met our first hire in the states in 2016, so we were already we had reasonable traction. Um, we focused a lot on getting those early hires in the States right, um, again, from a culture perspective. And so I'm over in the States probably five or six times a year, um, but it's, you know, it's not too bad. And Des goes over a bit as well, particularly he's only recently in our Salt Lake office. Um, but we've, we never did the permanent move. Um, Fair enough. And, and, and so if we're just looking at the, the 30 to 100 million, which is, I think we we called it the fourth phase, and it, it it's seemingly uh, or largely uh, the the biggest one, and probably can be broken down, um, you, you know, in, into various sort of chunks as as you actually do it. But if we look at it as this kind of fourth phase, um, what are the kind of key things that you you are now kind of looking at? Obviously, you talked about the the operational infrastructure that's going to come in. Um, what are you going to need to do? What's kind of like in the plan? And uh, say, okay, we're going to get to a hundred million. You know, within I, th- I think you said like within the next seven years or, or less, right? Yeah, in the next yeah, hopefully in the next three years, and that's our that's our plan. If we uh, do yeah, if we can do what we believe we can, I think there's a few things there. We've started um, 
we've continued on a journey where I suppose we're moving more up market, um, uh, say bringing on some of the largest Fortune 500 companies um, in the world onto our platform, which we're excited about. So that's obviously their bigger ticket deals by their nature. Um, I think the other thing is we're looking at moving more towards a multi-product solution. So again, at a certain point, you need those other levers for growth of revenue. Um, so in the last, this year, we've introduced um, Learn Upon Anywhere, which is our embedded learning product, which allows our customers to embed learning into any third-party app or website. Um, so we're very excited about that. Um, we've also introduced a base content offering um, and we're, um, we're done our first reseller arrangement as well, where we're reselling um, uh, a really strong content ordering tool called Easy Generator. So we've kind of gone from one product to four reasonably quickly. Now, there'll be small revenue streams um, uh, potentially at the start, but we see opportunity there. And then the other area is that uh, ge geographic expansion. So I was saying like we've the start of last year, we planned into that. We opened up the sales office in Salt Lake City. Um, we met our first hire there in February of last year. We've now over 20 people in that team. And as that team have, um, I suppose, uh, got up to speed and um, they're now taking most of our North American leads. And it's created an opportunity for our Dublin sales team to focus on growing in EMEA. Um, and so, yeah, we're, again, Different markets, lots to learn there. Um, uh, uh, the process, different competitors, and some of those geos, um, but we're seeing good traction there, so we're excited about that. Um, and then I think the other thing that I've seen as we scale and plan, it's that like your go-to-market motion definitely continues to get more sophisticated. We're now rolling out proper territories, which we really haven't had loosely up to now, but now we properly have that for our team. It's obviously a much bigger sales team. Um, just the importance of like functions like RevOps um, starting to get into just that level of data and um, how you scale scale your go-to-market becomes much more important. So they're, they're the kind of things we're getting our heads around, continuing to try and learn, get good advice where we can, um, as we as we go on that journey over the next couple of years and then i think the last thing there is continuing to scale our culture um it's uh yeah like obviously we've a growing team spread right around the world so that's that's key to us i think to, to continue to be successful awesome sounds like all good things uh, maybe the only thing but whether it's in the plan m a uh, coming in at some stage or yeah yeah Potentially, like it's certainly a lot more starts to come by my desk. Um, it's interesting, particularly the last couple of years, I think you hit a certain scale, suddenly you become a possible acquirer. Um, I think from our perspective, it would be kind of very strategic in terms of probably from a platform perspective, if there was an opportunity there, we'd consider it. Um, uh, but we haven't done anything yet, um, but potentially uh, something we might look at in, in the next couple of years. Well, we're going to move into the quickish uh, fire round now, uh, Brendan. So, um, yeah, can you share what's the best advice you've ever received? Um, yeah, I think probably there's lots of great advice and been very fortunate to have um, lots of good mentors, particularly across the, the tech scene um, in Ireland. Probably the best and one I think I use the most now is just the need to over, over communicate, um, particularly in a scale in business. Um, like, uh, you know, Derek, our CFO investor, always says, like, you just need to repeat, repeat, repeat until you're sick of saying the message and then repeat it again. And um, we kind of talk internally about how comms is hard. 
And um, it certainly is, I think, as you're scaling, I think um, focusing on comms, making sure the message is getting through is really important. So that's something um, that uh, I would say is probably the best bit of the lots of advice I've got over the years. What one thing has moved the needle or the dial the most for you, for your career? I would say pushing yourself outside your comfort zone um, on that one. I think there's lots of examples for me personally there. I In my earlier career, I wasn't very comfortable like presenting or like in front of an audience. Um, I used to get nervous, definitely didn't like it, but I sort of, I suppose, forced myself through that barrier. It's still something I'm never massively comfortable with, but you get better at it the more you do it. Um, and I think putting your hand up to take things on in my early career in KPMG, I think there was opportunities where I suppose people are looking for someone to do something and there's not too many takers. My view is go for it. You'll, you know, um, put yourself into maybe somewhat uncomfortable positions, but it, it also, I think, leads to opportunities that otherwise don't arise. So I've, I've always kind of believed in, in that mantra. So the same here, but there, there are probably, of course, many things, but what would you say, or would you call out one of the hardest things about scaling a SaaS company? Uh, for Certainly for us, I think it's focus is is the thing, and particularly in the early days, um, but even now, like even in where we're at and the next phase of our journey, um, it's it's nearly even harder. There's so much opportunity in, in SaaS, um, and you know there's great talent out there, there's great tech. You can almost build anything you want, um, and that's, I think, can almost be a disadvantage in some ways. And particularly the salesperson in me, I see opportunity all the time. So I, I was like, I oh, want to go and, and try and solve as many problems as possible. But I think if you're going to scale successfully and not pull yourself in too many different directions, um, knowing what you're going to be the best at and where you're going to focus is key. I'd say we've done a reasonable job on that but it's been a challenge and particularly again in the early days of bootstrapped you're sometimes tempted to build things to get some short-term revenue in um i think we've been good to kind of focus on who who we serve best who we who can be successful on the platform um, and i think that leads into things like referrals nps retention numbers um if you're selling to the right people at the start and staying focused on that i think you can scale much faster than maybe going in too many different directions have you a favorite business book uh um yeah, or favorite book on entrepreneurship yeah again lots of them probably the one that's been most useful for myself and members of our leadership team over the last couple of years is scaling up um by Vern harnish um we we go back to that one regularly um i've read it a couple of times i think in terms of again thinking about what you need to do to go up to the various stages on the journey it's a great book so if if you haven't read it i'd recommend it yeah it's the, the kind of the manual for uh, for scaling up and uh, i think the way i look you, you've got eos which a lot of companies um deploy as an operating system um which i i kind of view as like if you're under 10 million eos seems to be kind of you know the right thing although there are bigger companies and organizations that use it and then scaling up seems to be that kind of the the, the manual and the operating system or framework, uh, you know, for, for scaling companies. So, um, uh, great book there. Um, uh, what about, what do you do, uh, to look after yourself physically and mentally to ensure that you're at peak performance? I'd say probably not enough on the physical side, but trying to do more. Um, uh, it's something that if I, I chat to earlier stage founders now, I think it's key to like, 
uh, it's a long journey more often than not. Um, and, you know, you need to to give yourself the best chance to kind of stay the pace and not burn out. Um, mentally, I do. I like podcasts. So um, particularly I, I drive into the office a couple of days a week. So I tend to use that as my switch off time. I'll listen to like a sports podcast or something like that or or a business podcast. Um, so that's good. And then two small kids, a, tr- a three and a five year old. So that's the best way to switch off because they don't care <laughs> about work. No, definitely, definitely. But you'll soon have them doing your taxes uh, or if, if they want to. Uh, that's yeah. the thing. Uh, <laughs> keep working on them. Yeah, we get them going, get them coding now in a bit. So, yeah, yeah, very good. Exactly. Building new platforms. Um, but uh, uh, for sure. Uh, well, well, Brendan, we've come to the end of the podcast. It's been uh, a pleasure to have you on and, you, you know, amazing journey, amazing success. Um, yeah, like, uh, and, and no doubt you'll, you'll get to that 100 million uh, uh, fingers crossed in, in in three years, and we'll have to get you to to SAS doc. Uh, we were talking about putting yourself outside your comfort zone and, and speaking. We we'll have to get you a SAS doc to tell your story as well, uh, if you, if you're up for it. But uh, you don't have to uh, uh, confirm on the podcast. We can we can talk about it. There's plenty of time. Um, but um, but it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast, uh, 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 Brendan Noud, um, and uh, CEO of LearnUpon. Uh, thank you so much uh, for sharing with the SAS doc community. Great. Thanks, Alex. Good to catch up. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaSdoc conferences around the world. Want exclusive SaaS content and actionable insights to grow your SaaS? Join our community of over 36,000 SaaS founders at sasdoc.com.